We have a real gem of a story for you today, my friends. A story that tells the secrets of life and happiness. It's found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning at verse 46. And I'm going to read it to you from the Living Bible. And so they reached Jericho. Later, as they left town, a great crowd was following. Now it happened that a blind beggar named Bartimaeus was sitting beside the road as Jesus was going by. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus from Nazareth was near, he began to shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Shut up, some of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted the louder again and again. O son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped there on the road and said, Tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. You lucky fellow, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus yanked off his old coat, flung it aside, jumped up and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. Oh, teacher, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, All right, it's done. Your faith has healed you. And instantly the blind man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. Well, there's the story, my friend, but there's much more in it than meets the eye or the ear. Let's look at it more closely. It's the last week of Christ's life. Calvary is only a week off. This very night he'll be at Bethany, and Mary, the sister of Lazarus, will anoint Christ when she hears him speak of his coming burial. And the next day, that will be the day of the triumphal entry when the crowds will rejoice over the Messiah and the Pharisees will ask Jesus to tell them to be quiet and he will tell the Pharisees that if the crowd should stop their hosannas, the very stones would cry out. And so it's a time of great popular enthusiasm surging around the Messiah of Israel and for the first time in his ministry he does not repress it. So here we have a shouting multitude escorting him out of Jericho and there is a long file of beggars sitting at the gate. They're accustomed to lift up their monotonous wail at the sound of passing footsteps, and now they hear the crowd. Among them, Bartimaeus. He hears, and he asks, What's the cause of this stir? And they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth passes by. Now Bartimaeus had heard of Christ. He'd heard of his miracles. He had heard that he'd even healed blind men, and so hope is born in his breast. Interestingly enough, the blind men of the New Testament are revealed as having a unique sight, insight, insight. Well, blindness sometimes has its compensations. Seeing Jesus with the physical eye did not always produce faith, but not seeing him sometimes did. This man has a sense of need that's deep and urgent. But first, let's look at his biography. There's much and little here. It would be difficult to crowd in more biographical details in one little passage than what we have here. This man, we're told, is sightless. He's a pauper. He is begging. He's a professional beggar. And he's helpless. 
he's hopeless and he's friendless. What's more, he's unpopular. Anybody had a right to snub Bartimaeus the moment he uttered a syllable. But this man's not proud. He's not too proud to acknowledge he doesn't know. He cries out for information. And his cry is personal and direct. And there's hope in this man's heart. And there's faith in this man's heart. He calls out to the son of David. Not just Jesus of Nazareth. He sees it is the Messiah who's passing by. And ultimately this man is brought to Jesus. And Jesus asks him what he wants. The man in reply is short, direct, to the point, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Bartimaeus has scarcely ended speaking when Jesus began. Bartimaeus was blind at the beginning of Christ's little sentence, but he saw at the end of it. So there's the story that I haven't mentioned one or two important details. When this man sought help, the crowd was against him. Shut up, they yelled at him. Keep quiet. Don't interfere. Keep your place. But this man wouldn't be put off. He was bold, importunate, shameless. They tried to stifle him, but his persistent, strident voice pierced through their hosannas. And the quick ear of Christ discerned the difference between the unreal shouts of the crowd and the agony of sincerity. And then you notice that it said he yanked off his old coat and flung it aside. Now that old coat meant protection, comfort. It was all he had. But at the prospect of getting something so much infinitely better, he flings it aside lest it be an impediment as he stumbles his way to the master. When he comes to Jesus, he calls him Rabboni. That's the word in Luke's gospel, Rabboni. That's the word that Mary used, Mary Magdalene at the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. My master. Well, my friend, why do we read this story? Because Bartimaeus represents me. Bartimaeus represents you. There he was in the city of the curse. You remember, don't you, from the Old Testament, that Jericho was a cursed city because of the evil associated with it. A curse had been made in the name of God that the builders of it would suffer, the inhabitants of it would suffer. So here was the city of the curse. And my friends, it is an apt symbol of the whole world, for this world is cursed. The curse of sin has brought the blight of sadness and pain and sorrow, condemnation, guilt, death. People can argue about lots of things, but they can't argue about the fact that the world is in a mess, that every life has tremendous problems. So this man represents us in the world of the curse. And all the sick men and women of Scripture represent us. There were the paralyzed and the leprous, the deaf and the dumb and the blind. There are more blind people healed in the Gospels than those with any other affliction. Why does the Gospel stress blindness? Because, my friends, blindness is so dangerous. 
Look at that man over there walking along the edge of a precipice, as if it were a plane. For anything he knows, it is a plane and safe. That man over there walking is calm and fearless, not because there's no danger on the side of a precipice, but because he is blind and he doesn't know. And in this life, my friend, men and women who are wise and cautious in most things go on securely, carelessly, gaily and daily life, as if everything was safe for eternity. Whereas in reality there are snares and pitfalls all about us. Death may be just at hand. The very next step may send anyone into an infinite abyss. We were all born blind, my friends. Blind to God, blind to duty, blind to truth, blind to our danger as sinners. Judgment bound, guilty sinners who must have a saviour or be lost eternally. And so I say again, this man represents us all as we are born into this world, blind and begging for happiness. And light alone is no remedy. Light is a remedy for darkness, but it's not a remedy for blindness. This is why you should never be disturbed when you hear people ridicule Christianity or ridicule the Bible. My friend, would you heed a blind man that was criticising pictures or raving against the summer skies? If a blind man denied that the sun has brightness or that the mountains have grandeur or that a flower is beautiful, would you believe him? If a hundred blind men said they couldn't see the skies and therefore they didn't exist, would we pay them any attention? Most in the world are spiritually blind. They do not see the beauty of Christ. They do not see the glory of the Christian life. They do not see the truth of Holy Writ. But my friends, don't be disturbed when blind men say that there's no reality out there. They don't know. They can't see. I want to draw your attention to the fact that this man was a beggar. We're born beggars as well as born blind. We're all begging for happiness. Begging of earth and sea and sky, of every passing event. Of all people we meet, we're begging for happiness. That begging begins in childhood when we're filled with eager hopes. And when we become youth, though we're vexed and wearied and often sent empty away, we still pursue great hopes. We may be deluded again and again till we grow sober and older. But we're still beggars, begging for happiness. The majority of people, as Thoreau said, lead lives of quiet desperation. They've tried wealth and power and pleasure in the search for happiness, and it's failed. It was William James who wrote this, All natural goods perish, riches take wings, fame is a breath, love is a cheat, youth and health 
and pleasure vanish. Can things whose end is always dust and disappointment be the real goods which our souls require? We need a life that's not correlated with death. We need a kind of good that will not perish. We need a good, in fact, that flies beyond the goods of nature. That's William James writing in his famous book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. How true it is, my friends. The riches take wings, that fame is a breath, that love is a cheat, that youth and health and pleasure vanish. And yet how blind we are. We've got to find out by experience. We do not see the truth of Scripture that warns us ahead and tells us these things. We have to experiment. We have to reap pain and sorrow and sadness and tragedy before we learn. You know, possession brings indifference. <clears throat> Nothing's ever as beautiful in the hands as it is in our heads. But we poor fools are idolaters still. And as blind beggars we can toil or cringe or grovel or sacrifice for the favour of false gods. They ever promise that tomorrow the long-sought good shall be given. But how many tomorrows come and go and leave us still trusting to the next tomorrow? And my friends, even if a blind beggar wins what he seeks, he finds it a cheat and curses it. The spiritually blind are foolish too. Look at the disguises, the pretenses, the fawnings, all the low tricks of street beggars, which are adopted by those who want to be rich and famous. But what are the profits of thus begging the world for what God alone can give? My friend, we're always trying to get out of the world what can only come out of God. God has put a desire in our hearts for something much bigger than anything the world can offer. The desire is of him that it might lead to him. Everything else will cheat us. Everything else but God. Divorced from him is a cheat. Look at that street beggar. How many go by and give him nothing? And then as we watch... Someone comes along, some mean boy, and he puts something in the beggar's hand. He comes with a pretending sympathy. But what is it he's put there? It's a pebble. And that trembling hand, when it closes, brings a realisation to the heart that crowds in disappointment once again. But there's a still meaner boy. And look what he's doing. He put something in the hand of the beggar. But when the hand closes, it pierces it or stings it. And that mean boy laughs in his face. And that's the way the world treats us in our begging of it for happiness. Well, we've looked at Bartimaeus perhaps long enough. We must make sure we look at the more important figure of the story. Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. When Bartimaeus heard the noise, he asked who it was, and they gave him that message. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Well, that was an excellent sermon. It didn't take 40 minutes. The roadside was the church. The crowd was the preacher. 
the beggar was the congregation. But look at that message. It was simple and clear and vital, like every sermon ought to be. It was about Jesus. My friends, don't think it's a Christian sermon when you hear a discourse on psychology or politics or someone railing against some social evil. A gospel sermon is full of good news, and good news always concerns Jesus, that though we are bad, he loves us, that though we are failures, he can make us a success, that though we've been hateful, he cares for us just the same as though we'd been his perfect children. That's good news. So here was a perfect sermon, because it concerned Jesus of Nazareth. And the word Jesus means Saviour. Saviour. Who was this man that could say to Bartimaeus, What do you want me to do for you? Who can promise like that? Think of any man today doing as Jesus did. Standing before another person and saying, I'll give you anything that you want. Such a person would be either a madman or a blasphemer or God in the flesh. Christ was no madman. He's the only man who has ever lived whose wisest contemporaries acknowledged him as sane, though he claimed to be God on earth. Think on that, my friends. Muhammad didn't claim to be God. Zoroaster didn't claim to be God. Confucius didn't claim to be God. Buddha didn't claim to be God. The one man that claimed to be God, that was acknowledged as sane by his wisest contemporaries, was Jesus. And he's the only one. No, he was not a madman. He was no blasphemer. He was not a liar, dying because he wanted to support his lies. He was the way, the truth, and the life. And before Abraham was, he was. He was the forgiver of sins, the judge of all men, the resurrection and the life, one equal with the Father, one who is to come again in glory. We take it for granted when we read these passages in Scripture that these are the things that Christ should have said, like coins that have been rubbed almost clean of their distinctives. The words of Scripture often do not yield to us their true value. But here is a man saying to another man, What do you want? And I'll give it to you. That man was God. In Christ we see almighty power guided by infinite love. And my friends, he stands before us today. What do you want me to do for you? He asks. Not only is he powerful, my friends, but as we've said, he's loving. Amid all the cries and the shouts and the hosannas, Jesus heard this one voice, this one earnest, persistent, needy cry of Bartimaeus. He heard that voice among the clamour and he stopped. My friends, it's just the same today. Among the hosannas of the angels, 
Jesus ministers, hearing our prayers. He hears the smallest prayer that ascends in his name, that comes from a heart that's sincere, that acknowledges its need. And to him it is as though all the hosannas of heaven are stopped as he hears every such prayer. This Christ, my friends, in this story was about to die. But he wasn't thinking of himself. He wasn't thinking of his own pain, the infinite pain of being treated a curse for our sakes. For God was going to make him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was not thinking of the terrible thirst on the cross. He was not thinking of the delirium of pain and the awful awareness that he was alone, alone in the universe, made as the off-scouring of all things, because even God, his Father, could not smile upon him who represented the prisoner at the bar. But notice, though Calvary is so close, Jesus is not thinking of himself. He's thinking of a blind beggar. The Gospels always represent Christ as the defender of the weak, the lover of the poor, the one who had compassion upon the outcasts, upon the hopeless, upon the friendless. My friends, if you have no friends that you know of, You have an infinite friend in Jesus. And this very day he's saying to you, what do you want me to do for you? How can I help you? How can I bless you? What were the conditions? Well, faith. Bartimaeus believed, and he believed despite obstacles. He believed despite the opposition of the crowd. You can take your pick, my friends. You can go with the crowd in the broad way that leads to destruction. Or you can tread the narrow way, the straight way, through the narrow gate. It leads to life, but crowds cannot go therein. You'll have to be prepared to swim against the tide. You know, a dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a live fish to go against the current. If you go with the mass, if you go with the multitudes, you will certainly be deceived, fooled, disappointed and lost. But if, like Bartimaeus, you are prepared to persist in finding Jesus, despite what people say, then, my friend, you'll find him. And with him, you'll find all happiness, all joy, and everlasting life. There's another thing about this Bartimaeus. He had a true hierarchy of values. He yanked off his old coat, it says, and flung it aside. Now, that was his covering by day and his shelter by night. Maybe it was the only thing he owned. But he flung it away because he sought something much more important. Lots of people who start to follow Jesus get tangled up by their garments of respectability or by their reputation 
by their social standing, by their pleasant companions. The only one who will find Jesus is the one that wants him more than anything else. You know, when Paul became a Christian, he looked back on his past when he'd been a Pharisee of the Pharisees, rich in the estimation of his fellow men. And as he looked back at his former prosperity, he said, I count it all but garbage that I might know Christ and be known by him. And so, my friend, the Christian life is more than many represent it to be. Don't be deceived by cheap grace. It costs nothing to receive everlasting life, nothing to receive forgiveness, but it may cost you everything to keep it. It's he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. But if you will count him, Christ, more than anything else, if you're cast away as garbage, anything that might stand in the way between you and the Saviour, my friends, in finding the kingdom of God, you will find all other things added to it. Remember, Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Notice the cure in the story. It was instantaneous. The man had no longer finished his appeal before the great teacher and healer. Then Jesus spoke and said, it's done. And at the beginning of the words of Christ, the end desired by the blind beggar had been attained. The cure was instantaneous. It was perfect. He could see perfectly. And now I think of his experience. He was full of joy. A new world opened for him. He'd never seen it before. He was obedient. He was grateful. We read he followed Jesus in the way. We read that he glorified God. That's the test, you know, of whether we've been made to see. Do we really follow Jesus? Do we really obey him? Not in order to be saved, but because we're saved. Obedience is the ingenuous fruit of mercy. Religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. He followed Jesus in the world. Please notice, my friends, that not all the followers of Christ are really his friends or disciples. The great crowd that followed him were not really his disciples. But those who know their need, they're his disciples. My friend, this morning, may I remind you that Jesus could be very, very hard on people that felt they were rich in righteousness or possessions. But he was very, very easy on those that knew they were beggars. How is it with you this morning, my friend? Will you not call out to Jesus of Nazareth as he passes by? He's passing by. Now, call upon him for spiritual healing. Then by faith believe his word, and it is so. God bless you, my friend. God bless you.